Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to share with you a great conversation that I had with artist Mandy Wilson-Rosen on the Clubhouse app in November 2021. Our topic was the perks and perils of procrastination, and we clucked our tongues at famous procrastinators throughout history and had a friendly debate about whether procrastination is a good or bad thing while arting. And shout out to artist Natalie Beal for suggesting this topic. And also shout out to artists Nikki Creasy and A.D. Russell for joining our conversation towards the end to provide their tips for slaying the procrastination dragon. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Hi, guys. The audio for the first 10 minutes of this talk was a bit distorted, so I'm going to sum up a bit here. And then we'll join the full conversation 10 minutes in when the sound is better. At the top of the show, I welcomed Mandolin Wilson-Rosen as my guest co-host. Thank you. This is all mine. Mandy is a painter, collagist, and educator. You can see examples of her work on her website at mandolinwilsonrosen.com. And I'll link the website in my show notes. So first off, I wanted to talk about my own recent procrastination journey. I'm not normally a big procrastinator, but this podcast stuff has made me the worst. I've had to learn a new audio program and learn how to edit audio and lay in music tracks and put them underneath vocals and then fade stuff in, fade stuff out and all that jazz. And I'm like, oh my God, this is outside of my wheelhouse and I don't really know how to do this. So I've been like watching YouTube tutorials, listening to podcasts about podcasts, getting super meta. And it literally has taken over my whole life. And I looked up for a second last week and I was like, oh Lord, I haven't painted anything in a few days. (laughs) So I was having a real struggle Uh, getting back to my work after because you know like when you go away from your work it can act a bit like a toddler like pout and drag its feet and it can kind of be extra hard to get back into it especially if you take a break so my work was really resistant and it was really hard to overcome my inclination to just geek out about podcasting and get back to actually trying to make a painting but Friday I finally kind of conquered it slightly and was able to focus for an hour And to me, that was a big accomplishment. Normally, I also have things in the studio I do to battle procrastination. For example, I have things I listen to that get me in the zone. And as everyone knows, uh, that's trashy novel audiobooks. But I literally couldn't focus on anything. I just was like, you know, they weren't doing it. So I finally just started listening to podcasts about podcasts. And that was sort of like scratching an itch. And then I could sort of work. So I was trying everything. 
Here's Mandy's thoughts and tales of procrastinating. I mean, I, this is, I'm so happy to hear that Natalie had suggested this topic. And thanks again, Natalie, um, because it's a big one for me. I feel like I really can put the pro in procrastination. I've been doing it my whole life. Um, I remember even in art school, um, my senior year, when I was supposed to be working on a thesis project, just lying paralyzed on the floor of my room and just... Uh, un unable to start really, um, because it felt so huge. Um, and this was, it was a problem. Um, and it's something that I've dealt with over the years, you know, getting better at it as I get older, for sure. But, um, you know, I find that, oh, I think we're going to talk about a different couple types of procrastinating, but one of them for me is wrapped up in, in fear or, um, or big decisions is another kind of trigger for my mm. procrastinating in the studio. Do you find that? Uh, yeah, fear fear is a big trigger for me. Um, getting into a big project can make me feel kind of like, ugh, it's going to be months of like a slog. And there's just something so tempting about updating my website or scrolling on Instagram um, because you get instant gratification um, or you do something small for instant gratification versus wading into the marsh of a work that's not going to be done for a really long time. Back to Mandy. Definitely, me too. And especially if there's not a looming deadline, which I feel can be, you know, pretty motivating for me, maybe like a lot of listeners too. Um, if there's not, you know, that deadline hanging over, if there's not an upcoming show or, you know, a person that I told I would send images to, um, then, then yeah, that, that slog you talk about, it's just me up against my own goals and my own kind of wishes, um, that can be really hard to motivate. And, um, yeah, I, I can procrastinate with the best of them. Suddenly, you know, it's so interesting to clean my kitchen or it's like <laughs> really important to, you know, empty out the, the photographs in my hard drive and stuff. It's, Funny how that happens. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we could we could talk a little about what the sort of different forms, um, you know, different ways, um, you know, let us count the ways that procrastinating happens in the studio. Um, you know, I think so. Then I spoke a bit about how we define procrastination, and quoted an article from Artsy by Casey Lesser titled "Many Creative Geniuses Procrastinated." but that doesn't mean you should, which I find is a bit harsh. Um, and it came out in July, 2018. And in the article, there were two types of quote unquote procrastinators mentioned. These two types were taken from research done by Angela Shin Chun Chu and Jin Nam Choi. First, there is a, quote, active procrastinator. We'll call them the APs. These are people who like to work under pressure. People who use a purposeful delay. Like, they have a deadline, but they do it all two days before because they love the thrill. But they still get it done. So that's the active type procrastinator. And that's still positive. And then there's the, quote, passive procrastinator, a.k.a. people who are paralyzed by indecision and fail to complete the task. 
that's a little bit more destructive. Here's Mandy. They really are sort of at the, you know, at victim to their own terrible procrastinating habits, and it really gets in their way. Yeah, exactly. And then I asked Mandy if she wanted to add anything to our definition of creative procrastination. I think that that there are a couple of different things with that, um, because for me, you know, I kind of I broke it down into a couple of different categories. You know, I I think that there's there's just the the hard um, barrier of getting into the studio sometimes, procrastinating even, you know, getting to one's work. Um, and then there's also when you're in working mode, um, I've been known to procrastinate finishing a work. That's a totally different kind of thing. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we talked about a, a couple of famous artists who have that going on, supposedly de Kooning, um, Willem de Kooning uh, had a problem finishing work that he talked about. Um, and then... I then relate a story about a professor in school that accused me, j'accused, of never finishing things, or at least finishing them only to 90%. And you know what? He was totally right. Because guess what? The last 10% is not very fun. It's boring. And now finally, yay, the audio from the original talk is a bit better here. So we're just going to join the talk in progress, um, and I'm going to fade it up right here. Enjoy. Yeah, those little yeah, sort of tidying up, you know, bits and bobs. And I find that's so hard. I'm a big beginner, you know, um, and I find it hard to really commit to finishing a work often. Um, and then there's also there's also the idea that you can sort of procrastinate uh, one form of the work in your studio, something you might consider the art with a capital A, by doing something else, by making even a different kind of art. Um, which I definitely, you know, um, did a bit of that when the pandemic was new and, and it continues. <laughs> um, and then, and then there can be other things like procrastinating, doing other important tasks in your life by, uh, hiding out in art making. That's, that's not something I find happens to me personally that often, I have sort of the opposite problem, but well, I, I, I wonder if some of you, I'd be interested in hearing if other people do that. Yeah, like for me, just speaking it for myself as a parent, I can't really do that. Like, I remember there was a Johnny Cash re recreation movie with Joaquin Phoenix, and um, uh, who was the um, yes, Amy Adams? Was, was it, it Jackson? Witherspoon? Oh, Witherspoon. Yes, sorry, I get okay, confused. So sorry, she was playing June Carter Cash, and Joaquin yes. Phoenix was playing Johnny Cash, and I had gotten like People Magazine or something. Joaquin is a method actor. You must refer to him as Johnny Cash on the set. And he is Johnny Cash, you know, every single second of this entire film shoot, home and at work. And then Reese was like, rolled her eyes and she's like, please, I cannot do that. I have two kids at home. I have to make dinner. I cannot be June Carter Cash all the time. And so I feel like it's true. I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm more than a Reese Witherspoon. Uh, I wish I could the neglect. The only time I feel like I can do that without guilt is like at a residency or something. Yeah, same here. I'm in the same boat, Amy. Um, th there's no way that I can just, you know, sort of live the art life 24-7 uh, uh, to the avoidance of all other tasks. But I'm sure some people do. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess 
and, and I mean, it's good to find a balance, but, you know, sometimes you can't have a balance. Sometimes you have to be one or the other, but I think in general, you know, it's good to find a balance. But, um, but yeah, but, but I'm glad you brought up, uh, famous, uh, de Kooning, because I have a few, uh, famous procrastinators in history to share. Great. Okay. The first one is, you know, Leonardo da Vinci. You know him, you love him. Procrastinator. Um, it's a part of what Leonardo made Leonardo such a Renaissance man was that he was too easily distracted. His talents and energy were often wasted in doodles and unfinished projects. It took the painter 16 years to complete his most famous work, the Mona Lisa. Now that is long because that painting's <laughs> not that big. You know, like that should have been like two months tops. Um, he left both the Adoration of the Magi and Jerome in the Wilderness unfinished. It took 13 years to complete the version of the Virgin and the Rocks in London's National Gallery, and his equestrian projects were never built. So he only finished The Last Supper after his patron threatened to cut off funds. <laughs> I love that. And according to one story, he was outraged when a friar from the monastery um, complained about the delay. So Leonardo wrote to the head of the monastery, explaining he had been struggling to find the perfect villainous face for Jesus. And that if he could not find the appropriate face, he was going to use the face of that person who complained. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so then, you know, when he got older, he said he regretted never having completed a single work. <laughs> and he, he appealed to God, tell me if anything was ever done. Tell me if anything was done. And when he died, he left numerous sketches for unfinished projects in his codices. Codices. How do you say it? Codices? 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 Codices. Yeah. Um, it was a, yeah. A, a, such an, you kind of, you your heart goes out. Yes, it's very touching. His just deathbed appeal almost, or maybe it was, he wasn't on his deathbed, but um, that feeling that, you know, he never really brought anything to fruition. <laughs> hilarious, actually. It was, yeah, it just makes him very like human, but you know, it all worked out. It's cool. It's cool. Uh, the Mona Lisa's under bulletproof glass. It's fun. Um, but anyway, okay, and this is my favorite, Delacroix. He he appears in one of my zines about self-doubt. It's, yes. it's just a rich, fertile farmland field of self-doubt, um, especially in his journal. I think it's like a published journal. It's like a tiny little red book. So the, he says, the absurd mania I have for doing things in which I'm not vitally interested and therefore doing them badly. The more I do the things, the more I find to do. I'm always having excellent ideas, but instead of working on them while they are so fresh in my imagination, I keep telling myself that I will do them later on. But when? <laughs> then I forget about them, or worse still, can no longer see anything interesting in the ideas that seem certain to inspire me. The trouble is that with a roving and impressionable mind like mine, one idea drives another out of my head quicker than the changing wind alters directions of a windmill sails. <laughs> and when I have a number of different ideas for subjects in mind at once, what am I to do? Am I to keep them in stock, so to speak, quietly waiting their turn? And if I do that, no sudden inspiration will quicken them with the touch of Prometheus breath. Must I take them out of a drawer when I want to paint a picture? That would mean the death of genius. <laughs> the death of genius. Yeah, I, lo I love that so much because it's so true. You know, I, I, I have definitely felt that way, that the, the ideas sometimes can come, you know, sometimes faster than you can act on them or they're, when you're in a place where you can't 
act on them. But more often than not, it's that you go back and you can't remember or that it's suddenly not as inspiring as it was at first. Right. You had like a fit of inspiration. You wrote all this stuff down and you thought, I'm set. I'm set for the whole year. And then you look back and you're like, oh my God, this is not <laughs> But one of the other things he says is that he has this fear. He calls it ridiculous fear of doing things that are beneath my full powers. And I think that's often at the root of procrastination too, that you don't want to act on a big project because you don't think you're up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely ring, rings true to me. So this, you know, these, these Delacroix quotes you can find in the delicious Delacroix journal. Um, of, he was a bit young when he wrote these things, um, which is where you can find your most juiciest self-doubt poems. In, um, artist biographies, the young years. Um, but uh, we also found it in the margin. And then, okay, the last but not least, the PS de Resistance is Victor Hugo. Okay, now this guy, get a load of him. <laughs> this is from an article, Victor Hugo on how to beat procrastination and finish anything you start. All right, so he did something so extreme. He procrastinated so bad writing this book this publisher got really, really mad and they gave him an ultimatum, uh, otherwise known as the old tomato. And they said, if he didn't submit that book in five months, he was going to pay a fine of 1000 francs for every single week. It was late. So there was like money. on. Yeah. That. That's, you know, that's motivating. So listen to what this guy did. <laughs> Shortly afterwards, Hugo bought a gray woolen body stocking that covered his body from head to toe. A new bottle of ink and locked his clothes in the wardrobe to prevent himself from leaving the house. (laughs) According to Hugo's wife, Adele, he entered his novel as if it were a prison. (laughs) Wow. Each day from dusk till dawn, Hugo would write his book and only leave his working desk to eat, sleep, or read the drafts of the books to his friends. So he self-imposed a house arrest. And it worked. In 1831, he finished writing the book weeks before the deadline. And he named it, drumroll, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) And within 18 months of the book's publication, it sold 3,000 copies. And that was a lot for then. And today it's thought of as one of the greatest books ever written. So so this article that I'm reading from, um, Victor Hugo on how to beat procrastination and finish anything you start, basically says you can adopt this house arrest strategy that with a little bit less of an extreme <laughs> uh, version. So step one is write down a deadline in the near future. So not too far, but not too soon. So you want it to be like the perfect motivating time. Um, then you want to create a negative consequence for inaction. So yes. You want to create stakes. So like Hugo had to pay a thousand francs per week of delay you know, you have to think of something you'd have to kind of do. And it's, I know it's getting a bit. <laughs> um, anyway, step three is design your desired future action. So they said start a commitment, de- like start some commitment devices so you can lock away, all, like he locked away all his clothes. Um, they say if you want to stop charging things, you lock away your credit card. Um, mm-hmm. if you want to join the gym you pay up front for all the classes so there's sort of things you come up with that make you commit more kind of be more of a hard ass and also you can design your environment to be more hospitable to you 
Um, but yeah, these are their, I don't know, like in practice, if I'm going to wear a full body stocking and that's my favorite part, the full body stocking. That would be. Maybe that is a secret. We should just be like, uh, the show's over. We figured it out. Crafting nut. The answer is just wear a full body stocking. Um, I can, I can maybe. I mean, what was the idea with that? Just to um, supposedly, E. E. Cummings did this too. You know, that would like leave the house. Um, fully dressed for work um, and then show up at his own door and walk into his study as if he had just, yeah. Um, but I think it's that outfit, you know, the outfit what, that yeah, is the signal to the brain yeah. that you're beginning. Dress for success. Okay. So that's, yes, a good, dress for success. that's a good solution. Um, so speaking of solutions, I wanted to talk about like what I might do or trying to break yeah. my procrastination. So one, the first thing I do is like, I evaluate why I'm progressing. Maybe I'm just bored doing what I'm doing and I need to evaluate like maybe a change, you know, because art is self-directed. So I'm forcing mm -hmm. myself to do something. If I don't want to do it, there's something there to investigate. And then I might also, you know, ask, do I need to break the tasks down into smaller tasks? Because I might be yeah. intimidated by the large, the lord, the largeness of the, of the work kind of maybe you're worried it's too hard for you. You just got to trust that you are the right person for the job. You're skilled enough. You're going to make it happen. And, you know, also great artists made it work. I mean, Agatha Christie wrote her, all her novels at the dining room table with all her kids running around. So, I mean, there's, you know, you can always find an example of someone who persevered, which is always good to read about. And then also I, I really need to make it cozy. So when I'm working <laughs> Uh, I need the environment to that guy's uh, point, the Hugo article. I really need the environment to be conducive. So I need to have a, something on audio that's very soothing and normal and ritualish, and need, I need to have everything kind of in place and, and feel like everything's expected and, and relaxing and nice. Yeah, I like to have a cup of tea. I think that's a good one, Amy. The the ritual, the coziness. Yeah, drinks are really important too. Like I'm, I'm an iced coffee drinker, twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five days a year. You guys come back to iced coffee in the summer. I'm just like, welcome back. I've not <laughs> ever left it. And so when I'm doing the studio, I definitely have like the iced coffee, and that's a big part of it too. That's part of the cozy cave. Yeah, these are such good strategies. Oh, did you have a couple I more? I just have a couple more. The yeah. Main one is that if Nikki's down there, no, if Nikki's down there, but Nikki Creasy and I have a little. We meet every month for a little bit of like a little mini accountability sesh. Yes. And that's very helpful um, to just pick somebody that you trust, um, a person who's really supportive, um, who who will like cheer you on, and then you both kind of report to each other whether or not you've achieved your goals. And I usually I'm just like, no, I haven't. <laughs> but it's just nice to like be inspired by somebody else going for it and it makes you braver. Um, so I think, you know, things I would procrastinate a lot too is maybe not, I, I might not procrastinate making my work, but I'd procrastinate like contacting, following up with somebody who was interested in my work. I would really procrastinate that. That would be more graphic for me. So having the little the little accountability meeting makes you like, oh, okay, I have to do that before I meet the person because I don't want to let them down. So that's a nice little mental trick for me. Yeah, that's a big one for me too. And then that's 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 all I got for my side. Um, well, I'm, 
I might just piggyback on a couple of those ideas um, just to add to the, the another party um, for accountability. I find that even um, it doesn't even have to be um, a formal meetup, although I love that you and Nikki continue to meet. That's really that sounds really helpful. Um, being informal, I find like if I just mention it out loud, what it is I'm about to do to my husband and to my kids or to my mom on the phone, you know, or even a friend and just say like, this is what I'm going to get done this week that, um, even that little bit of like, you know, kind of who cares accountability is still helpful because I've said it out loud. Um, um, just, you've made it, you've like manifested it because you set it into the universe. Yeah, it it helps. Um, it has to be a person that, you know, can, can really not let you slide too much though. Um, and then that idea of breaking up the work into small manageable chunks. Um, there was this, um, sort of a, an update on that that I came across when when researching procrastination, which is a, a wonderful way to procrastinate. Um, <laughs> I came across a New York Times article um, from a, a, a couple of years ago um, called Why You Procrastinate. And, um, and it had this idea that even um, even beyond that, breaking the work up into small tasks, uh, you could go take it further and actually do the hardest thing first. Um, and this was something my dad always told me. Uh, he used to drive trucks for UPS for a while, and that was sort of the, the most useful advice that he got on the job that he passed, passed down to me, and I still think about it. Um, if you can t- sort of tackle the hardest thing first, it can give you just such a boost of confidence um, and accomplishment rather, um, that it can kind of spur on, you know, even more, more task, um, tackling. Cause it gives you a little momentum. Um, yeah. And it just, yeah, after that, everything's, you know, downhill from there. So, um, and then, you know, definitely the rewards, um, treats, you know, money that you, um, I, I came across this idea. I haven't tried this myself, but money that you put aside, um, for a purchase or even to give to charity as a reward for having done, you know, something that you're, you've been unable to do heretofore. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that idea, but I, I haven't tried that myself. Um, yeah, that's such a smart idea. And then, you know, I think it's also interesting to kind of delve into what it is we do to procrastinate. You know, I really like that you started by saying, you know, if you can catch yourself doing it to sort of ask yourself why, you know, what is it that you're avoiding, you know, and why. And so I think certain behaviors can be a trigger for that sort of awareness for me, like. Um, if I find myself, you know, checking social media or email for the umpteenth time that day, or, um, you know, another one is like furiously cleaning the bottom of the pots, <laughs> um, you know, and I find myself kind of really getting into cleaning or chores that don't really need to be done right that second. Um, I often, it's a clue to myself that like, I ought to be in the studio. What am I, what am I, um, what am I afraid of facing in there? Totally. Um, yeah. I love how you were cleaning the bottom of the pan. Yeah. Sometimes I, I don't know. It's just always a, a, a signal that I ought to be doing something else. You know, you could, you could sort of forgive yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like you just said that you're good enough. Like you said, um, try to ease some of that guilt off of yourself because that's not going to be productive. I do love that idea though, that like, the longer that this, you know, the task undone goes, um, the more difficult it is to, to tackle. Um, there's a quote, there's a, 
there's a Baudelaire quote, Charles Baudelaire, um, about this same idea. He said, no task is a long one, but the task on which one dare not start, it becomes a nightmare. And I just know, I just know it so personally. (laughs) That's so true. Well, I think we both love starting. It's just the, just when you have to leave it for a little while, then it's just brutal. But you know what? If you're away for long enough, starting's also really hard. Yes. It's like climbing Mount Everest, getting back to a practice after you've taken a break. Right. Because you've sort of built it up in your mind as this monumental task. And you also just feel like an alien on a different planet. You don't feel at home anymore. So it takes a lot of forcing it to get back into the zone. Um, That's where I do my, uh, my one hour rule. So one hour rule means I don't want to (laughs) work. It feels really awkward and awful and um, I'm having trouble connecting to the work. So I basically say to myself, can do other tasks all day or you know during the school school hours which is when I work um but you have to work on the tasks that you you know you're avoiding for one hour and all of a sudden that that first hour is excruciating and painful (laughs) awful and I've got my cozy accoutrement I've got the iced coffees you know bottomless iced coffees I've got the trashy audiobooks on coming out me I got everything cozy and nice uh, and it's still painful, still excruciating. And then finally, by the second day, I'm still doing the one hour rule. And then if you're lucky, eventually one hour just accidentally turns into two. And then, you know, the next day, maybe two turns into three and then you're back in, but it's, it's a long hike back in my experience. That's a really good tip. I've, I've, I'm definitely taking that one down to my notes. Oh, honor. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to segue, if it's okay with you, like into the positives of the vaccination. Yes. Get us out of this morass, Amy. Yeah. So in the Artsy article, they say that downtime and rest are beneficial to creativity. So, you know, they use an example of Alice B. Talkless and Gertrude Stein. They would take like these long walks and you could argue that that looked like procrastinating but it was actually beneficial rest and downtime to fuel their creativity. So maybe they were the active procrastinators versus the passive procrastinators. And then there was one more example of somebody who was active. Anyway, I'd have to flip through the notes. Yeah. That idea of like, you know, taking a break and, um, and just, I've done that where you, you're, if you're stuck, you know, it can really help to sort of walk away and, you know, put it off for 30 minutes, get yourself some lunch or walk in nature um, to just refresh the mind. I think that's really productive. Yeah. And, and one of the other examples was uh, Fellini. He'd wake up at 6 a.m. each day and they said putter, <laughs> putter about his apartment before setting out for a walk. And so they make the argument that, to an observer, this may have looked like procrastination, but this was actually a means of fostering creativity, a habit of mind for contemplation and reflection. So I think it's important when we are needing to recharge or we're needing to feed our creative minds that might be a bit burnt out or stale, and maybe they need a recharge that isn't doing something else isn't technically procrastination. Um, procrastination is only that 
that prevents us from meeting our goal. Exactly. So even if you do it last minute, even if you goof off all the time, as long as you're meeting that goal, you're technically not procrastinating. Right. Some people um, sleep in their studio or read, you know, sort of refill um, their inspiration, you know, that way. Yeah, right. And so, you know, you think, oh, sleeping, but, but that could that could be a vital part of their practice. And that's not technically procrastinating if they're getting their stuff done. But yeah, I, uh, to your point, too, about in the studio, I wanted to kind of uh, get into our pandemic, uh, quote unquote, maybe active procrastination practices. Yes. Because uh, you and I both have something. And I, I, I traditionally would love, I love to start a procrastination painting. So if I'm in the murky middle of something big and I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'll often start a tiny little painting on the side that I can like goof off on. And it just gives you that thrill of finishing something and makes you feel good. Like, oh my God, I finished something. I'm still an artist. <laughs> Versus day in, day out of having something that just isn't coming together, which, you know, a month of that is like demoralizing. You know what I mean? So having the procrastination painting can give me a little endorphin boost. Yeah, like an easy win. Yes, an easy win. So that helps a lot. And then in the spirit of the procrastination painting, I kind of did the similar thing in the pandemic where we all were stuck at home, trapped in our you know, caves with under our pelts. Um, and I was really kind of intimidated to go back to the studio just because it felt I hadn't been there in a while. I was like stuck at home doing the, the online school and stuff. And I just, I don't know about you, but it just didn't like, I just felt like I wanted to hunker down. I didn't, it felt weird to be in the studio. And Definitely. so, um, you know, I only had these kind of like cracks in between online school, like lunchtime, et cetera. And I started just making, um, I started, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll master watercolor. <laughs> but it turns out it's really hard for an old painter to master watercolor because it's like completely opposite process. So of course I was messing up over and over and creating piles and piles of failure. And um, I think it was you, Mandy, who encouraged me to try to collage them. And Yay. <laughs> I know you were like my mama bird. And so I did end up doing it and it started a whole nother body of work. And it was something I could do on a table that was, you know, you could do it in between busy, a busy schedule. It didn't, it wasn't like a giant painting that I needed hours and hours and hours every single day to move along like this was something quick satisfying um weird and interesting and something i wasn't super good at so it's kind of fun to to try something new and it was just it felt like a really heavy time and but collage felt very light so i think you could argue that that was more of like an active procrastination but did it prevent me from making a lot of oil paintings yes but it kind of brought me into this other new realm. Yeah. I mean, it was actually, it seemed really pivotal in your work in the end um, that it, or not that it's ended, but that it's, um, it turned out to be something really important. I think so. But I think, you know, if you had to categorize it at certain points, it might've seemed like passive procrastination. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think in that way, procrastination can be very positive in an artist studio. If you're procrastinating doing something hard by doing something else that's art related, it could lead to really cool stuff. And even like um, Amy Stillman is famous for having been like on a summer holiday and she would paint flowers 
the beautiful flowers and uh, little bees and things like that. And I just love stories like that when an artist just does this little side weird thing and it starts to infiltrate the main work. I just absolutely love that piece of um, She also made zines like yourself. She makes amazing zines. I think you can, <laughs> you can buy them sometimes on Printed Matters website. Yeah. I have one called the Studio Visit where like she she goes to do a studio visit at a university and all the kids are bored and they don't pay attention and they could care less about what she's saying and then nobody really invites her to the party and then her a curator from the city was supposed to meet her but bails on her so she's just like feels like basically a deflated balloon. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think like there's like one where she's like giving a lecture to a crowd and the only question is like, I don't know, like something about her paint, the brand of paint she uses or something like that. Yeah, it's just really <laughs> depressing. But I'm very interested to hear you also describe your point of view on your pandemic procrastination project, or I don't know if it's technically procrastination, but I'd love to hear more of your procrastination painting style project that you started in the pandemic. Um, sure. I, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, I did something similar during the during the early days of the pandemic um, when I, too, was stuck at home with some school age children and managing their screen time and, uh, you know, online school experience, um, not to mention meals and other household tasks. So I also felt it really hard to go into my studio, which was only a few hundred feet away. Um, so you know, I feel, I feel lucky that I had this idea to, to keep working in just sort of a provisional way. Um, I ended up making these drawings on paper, uh, on graph paper. I started just sort of filling in patterns on graph paper, um, just as a way to sort of stay sane, um, and to keep my hand moving and to feel like I was making some sort of, you know, visual um, object. <laughs> um, and those turned into more grid-like drawings eventually on paper that wasn't graph paper, but that, um, I, I started filling the drawings with numbers, um, because I was so felt overwhelmed by all the numbers and times and timekeeping and quantities in my day. I was getting, I was finding it really hard to stay on top of everybody's meeting times and, um, how much time to allot to certain things and uh, multiple schedules and, and even cooking and exercise, like trying to fit all that into the day um, in some sort of schedule. So I made these gridded number drawings with colored pencil um, because I, I just didn't have it in me to, to try to make paintings, um, especially anything large and daunting. I relate to that so much. And I, I just encourage everyone to go check out uh, her website and you can see her number uh, grids. And, and I just think they're remarkable. And I love how they were born out of the, the scheduling and the overwhelming feeling of being home during the pandemic. Uh, thank you so much, Amy. Um, yeah. And they, you know, they ended up just sort of propelling the work forward a bit. Um, my work has changed. I find it actually kind of hard to go back to what, uh, whatever it was I was doing before. Um, you know, now I'm sort of involved with these number collages and, and grids sort of tilted and, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't really know what it, where it's taking me, but <laughs> I think it's good. I think it, that's the best place to be as an artist where you're like, I don't know where I'm going or what this even is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 
definitely not formulaic in, in any way, for me at least. Well, I wanted to, um, as we have a few more things to talk about, but I wanted to encourage anyone in the audience, if you'd like to come up, please join us. I'm sorry my volume's kind of low, but I'm trying to talk louder. Um, come on up and and share maybe like what you do if you're trying to stop yourself from procrastinating. Mandy and I would absolutely love to know. <laughs> yes, um, please. We are dying to know any tips or tricks you might have up your sleeve. And in the meantime, I wanted to, oh, here comes a raised hand. Okay. I'm doing it. Please. Oh, hi, Nikki. Hi. Continue talking and I'll, I'll talk later. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was going to do a few more tips. Okay. So I wrote down, um, if you're feeling blocked, take a break or work while watching TV. I think that helps a lot. Like watch some really good show that you love. Like it just kind of gives you that homey feeling. Um, it makes it seem a little bit more fun. So I recommend that. Um, you could just totally just draw something in your sketchbook that's unrelated, like an Amy Silman style, or just try to make art as fun as you can. Um, try to do things outside your wheelhouse. So those are kind of my last, my last tips before um, we move on to the next. Great. Um, Nikki, do you want to share what you've got? Uh, sure. I have a couple different strategies because I feel like this is something I'm always fighting against, but I'm also really um, impatient and driven, I suppose. So it really upsets me to procrastinate at the same time. Um, I, I have just have a really quick, funny story. I have a writer friend and she once told me, and this has stuck with me over the years. She said that writing, um, is a lot like sex. Like, even if you don't think you want to, like, if you just mess around a little bit, you'll get into it and you'll eventually enjoy it. <laughs> Love that. Which I really, you know, and it actually is true because even, you know, those nights when I'm like, I'm beat, I don't want to go in the studio. I just come in and maybe I start mixing a little paint or just something just sitting here. And then all of a sudden I'm in it and I don't realize, you know, that I've just started. Um, but a couple of strategies that I have are sort of just tricking myself. Um, one thing I do is if I have something I need to do, um, I'll sort of just create something it's worse that I also have to do. <laughs> and then the first thing doesn't seem as bad anymore. But like, you know, what be worse? Like, what do you, what do you invent? That's worse? Oh, like I really should clean out the basement, you know, <laughs> that is but that's, that's, I know that's not going to happen. So I might as well write this email or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Dealing with anything in the basement would be motivation enough for me. Exactly. Oh, and, and Nikki, I'm so glad. And that is a brilliant strategy that, and I'm also putting that down in my notes, but I'm really glad you brought up writing the email because that's another thing that I find uh, hard to do. You know, it, it's, it's, those are the things I procrastinate and anyone who knows me knows I'm terrible at getting back to you because if, if it's, you know, at all important or art career related, you know, I can put off that email. It's just, yeah. Um, so, and I, and I, yeah. Think that's another thing that I have really, it's partially taking it step by step, but also tricking myself that like, okay, just open the email window, you know, <laughs> like just open a new message. Okay. You did that. Just say, you know, dear so-and-so. And then you're like, okay, well I can write a few more words. It's not so bad. Um, then sending it is the, you know, that's the next right. step and it's often harder. Save for draft. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Oh, but I, yeah, I, I know that, that place, the, the email draft, oh, but I <laughs> and also uh, like messing around until you're in the mood. 
like right. messing around <laughs> with the email client. You're like, well, I'll just, you know, open up a message. And now I'm just going to write, you know, dear so-and-so. Yeah. And then that's so hard. Yeah. And if you even think of it as a draft, like, oh, I'm just going to write a few words that are, this is not what I'm actually going to send, but I'm just going to write a few words. It's just, you know, like it's anything. Like a rough draft. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking like it's so easy, but I know it's still a struggle. It's the absolute worst. And I'll even agonize over an Instagram DM. Oh, of course. Just as bad. Yes. I mean, Instagram posts sometimes or, you know, an an application um, for a residency or for an open call, you know. Yes. Those are, those are, at least those have looming deadlines. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the work for that, you know. But yeah, anytime there's writing, that's a wall for me. Yeah. Um, I could talk to anyone as long as necessary, but it's something about writing. Like, oh God. Uh, and when you're trying to be professional, you got, I sent someone the wrong email already this week. <laughs> like I, I just, you know what they do, the email chain. And then you think you're replying to the first one, but you're actually replying to the second one. And it was like a professional person. And then I had to send the whole apology. It's just like, awful. Uh. I know. <laughs> this is why we dread it. Yes. But, you know, but again, as you brought up, Amy, like you can then we can talk this at our monthly meeting and I can be like, damn, she took care of that. She checked that off the list, <laughs> which I think I'm more the person saying, damn, she took care of that. Well, and I think, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because it is so important. And as Mandy said too, like just telling someone that you're going to do something is like, I mean, I'm an, I, I easily feel shame if I feel like I failed something in front of someone. So I think that is such a motivator, you know, um, just even, even telling my mom like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to call this person and see if I can get a meeting with them. And then if the next time I talk to her, she's like, whatever happened with that meeting? And I'll have to say, call, you know, it's, it's definitely like playing with your own, you know, on your behalf. Like I was feeling those feelings, like having to tell someone you didn't do it. Yeah. Also, you know, be choosy with your accountability partner. Yes. You want to find mm-hmm. somebody who's sort of similar, similar goals, who's going to cheer you on for sure. Tough love. So, yeah, someone who's not going to let you slide too much, but um, will will be understanding and on your on your team. Yeah, like like be super psyched for the. You want to be. You want to have the vibe of being super psyched for each other. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Those were juicy tidbits. Nikki, thank you. Of course. Thank you. Um, so if any, I want to encourage anyone else who'd like to come up, please come up and share um, your tricks and tips for skirting around uh, procrastination. We'd love to hear. Um, in the meantime, I wanted to just bust open this book called The War of Art uh, that Mandy and I are going to be looking at in more depth uh, later in November. It's written by a guy named Stephen Pressfield. Now, I don't open-throatedly endorse this guy because he does sometimes say you can just kind of like wish away cancer. So I'm just like, dude, what? Anyway, but he does, he comes up with this concept in, uh, called resistance. And resistance is basically something inside of you that comes up and manifests in different ways to prevent you from working because we are cavemen. And we're wired to avoid risk. So if you're in your studio, your caveman brain is like, I don't want to take a risk. 
This seems scary. This seems hard. And so all these, you'll manifest all these things to, you know, avoid the risk, which could be like the laundry has to be folded or, you know, I'm, I'm scared to send the email to the person. It all seems like life or death to the caveman brain. Um, And so he uses this concept of resistance. And so he says, uh, resistance is invisible. Resistance cannot be seen, touched, heard, or smelled, but it can be felt. We experience it as an energy field radiating from a work in potential. It's a repelling force. It's negative. Its aim is to shove us away, distract us, prevent us from doing our work. So I think that ties in so perfectly with procrastination because we're trying to avoid the fear and risk. Um, It's a very powerful force. And I experienced it myself firsthand, like changed my work. It was just, I really struggled trying to push through and and make something hard. So I I feel like resistance is, is real. But anyway, this is the section of resistance and procrastination. Procrastination is the most common manifestation of resistance because it's the easiest to rationalize. We don't tell ourselves, I'm never going to write my symphony. Instead, we say, I'm going to write my symphony. I'm just going to start tomorrow. So it's kind of insidious way of avoiding taking a risk because you kind of put it off. And then he, he, he wasn't satisfied with just that one. So he says, uh, resistance and procrastination, part two. Uh, the most pernicious aspect of procrastination is that it can be a habit. We don't just put off our lives today. We put them off until our deathbed, like Leonardo. Never forget this very moment we can change our lives. There never was a moment and never will be when we are without the power to alter our destiny. This second, we can sit down and do our work. That was the, a little taste of the Stephen Pressfield, which we'll be getting into a little bit deeply. But anyway, I just thought his concept of resistance was really interesting. Yeah, that uh, it's so it's so, uh, the, the fact that it's tangible or the notion that it is tangible. I really relate to. Yeah. And like for me, it wasn't necessarily procrastination, but it was intense fear. Yes. I just had to sandbag my mind with self-help audiobooks, basically, that were just like, you're doing it. You're good. It's good. It's good to dream big. You know, I just needed someone saying all that the entire time in order to get past that. that It is. And you are. Uh, Yeah. So I, I did have to go into the cheesy zone. I had to make use of some cheesy tools, but it, but it helped me. Um, I would not recommend a single one of those books to anyone, <laughs> but it was, it was a means to an end. Um, but I wanted to welcome Aidy Russell to the stage. Hello, Aidy. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. This is such a great conversation because it's like my life every day. <laughs> well, you're, day among, you're among procrastinating here. <laughs> well, that's what's so comforting about it is just to know you're not alone. <laughs> There was a couple things. One, I'm totally with Nikki on that thing of like finding another project that you don't want to do that makes the first project seem more appealing. <laughs> so, and I'll often do that. Like if I'm struggling with a painting, then I'll start a drawing that I also don't want to do. And then whichever one I avoid, I'm going to end up doing the thing that I should be doing. And, you know, again, once you start, it kind of, you know, becomes easier to do. So, I'll be like working on a drawing and be like, oh, I hate this drawing. I guess I'll just go work on that dumb painting then. You know, <laughs> that works. But I wanted to say something about the war of art. And it sounds like you guys are going to do an episode on it later. But one thing that he said in that that was helpful for me is that the resistance is strongest at the beginning and right before you finish. Yes. So 
when I'm in that kind of space where I'm trying to start something and I just can't get myself to start, or I'm almost at the end of something and I just can't get myself to finish it, that like knowing that it's like this force that's working against you, like at its most extreme in those moments, sort of helped me have a different attitude, which is like an attitude of like going to war, like, okay, here's this like thing. And this part's like really, really hard, but I know it's hard and it's not my fault. And I just have to go in with this attitude of like, today I'm going to conquer this thing and I'm just going to start it or I'm just going to finish it. So anyway, I found that really helpful. That is so helpful, Aidy. Thank you. Yeah, it's almost like you kind of hobble the power of it because you're expecting it. It's not an ambush as much as you're like, oh, I know what this is. This is my brain weasels doing it. Yeah, it just helps with the part where you think like, oh, I suck and I can't do this because I'm bad at it. You know, it's like a way of sort of depersonalizing it and saying like, okay, this is just a phenomena that happens at this part in the process. And so... I have to figure out a way to sort of get past it. And it sort of it sort of diverts the sort of other loop, which, which is to say that I can't do this because I'm uh, it's too hard for me or I'm not good at it or the whole thing's a failure or whatever. Um, yeah. Oh, um, I was going to say that I, I also use that technique sometimes with social stuff because sometimes I get nervous about like going out and being social, super social. And then I know after the social event, I'm going to feel like I was the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> But then like, if I just think to myself in a war of art way, this is natural. I'm supposed to, I'm going to feel weird right now, but it'll, it'll pass. It like helps me get through it and makes me not become a complete hermit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I totally get that. And I'm sure you're not nearly as weird as you think you are. (laughs) I don't know. Or at all. I haven't been able to get rid of the feeling of being really dumb, but I'm I'm starting to wonder if I actually was really dumb. So that's progress. <laughs> you have to think like the nerdy glasses or something. It's like, you know, you have to make the, the feeling really dumb thing be part of like a cool part of your personality that makes you interesting and special. <laughs> Amy, I guarantee you're not the dumbest one in the in the room. It's just, there's no way that's possible. Hello. Oh, thank you. You say the sweetest. Totally agree. <laughs> thank you. Thank you all so much. Is there anyone else who would like to come up? Please raise your hand. Otherwise, Mandy, do you have any other closing or final words? Um, Well, there's just um, there's just this very succinct quote that I love from Erica Jong, who wrote Fear of Flying. If anyone read that, Um, she just calls it like it is. She says, we are so scared of being judged that we look for every excuse to procrastinate. And it's really that. Right. It's like it's that fear that that. fear of judgment or the risk of putting yourself out there um, that can really, (laughs) you know, make cleaning the bottom of the pot so appealing. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. The pot is looking better and better. (laughs) But beyond that, I know I don't, yeah, I don't really have any other tips. I really, I've really appreciated hearing all those strategies that others have shared. Yes. Thank you to everyone. Um, I especially want to thank Nikki and Aidy and Mandy too uh, for all coming and speaking tonight. It made the conversation so good. I loved hearing everyone's take on it. It was really special and wonderful. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. If you'd like to check out our Instagram, please find us at Pep Talks for Artists. We really appreciate you stopping by and we'll see you next time. 
Good night. Thank you.